right, good morning, everybody, again. Those of you joining us online, really happy that you're doing that. Those of you in the room, really glad that you're here today. Um, if you're newer with us or you're a guest today, we are super happy that you're here. Um, just want to reiterate, you can fill out a welcome card and stay connected. Uh, and if this is your first time during this part of the service with us, the way this works is we just kind of work our way through a chunk of scripture. So today we're going to be in the book of Acts, which is in the New Testament, uh, and we're going to be in chapter 21. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, um, the big numbers in there are the chapters and the little numbers are the verses. So Acts chapter 21, verse 27. If you came today and you don't have a Bible and you're curious about it, there is a bookshelf underneath the counter in the little nook when you came in that says resources and information. You can take one of the white paperback or the light blue paperback Bibles with you. Love to give you that as just a gift. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback blue one maybe in a seat around you somewhere. And if you get lucky, you might get the large print edition. So uh, that will be where we are going to be today. Acts chapter 21. We've been just working our way through the book of Acts, and I promise we are coming to the end of that. Uh, after the book of Acts is over, we are going to spend some weeks in the Apostles' Creed that we just recited, uh, just kind of talking about the theology that's embedded in there from the scriptures and from uh, the church fathers and the ecumenical councils, which is something we don't talk about a lot in our tradition, uh, but we are part of that uh, heritage. So we want to talk through that. And then by the time that's over, we will be uh, almost to Advent and Christmas. So uh, praise God, the heat will be over. Um, so Acts chapter 21, we're going to start in verse 27 today. Uh, but just to recap a bit, I know you summer lovers are like, yeah. but uh, to recap a bit, you might remember last week in our, uh, in our talk on Paul and uh, the book of Acts that Paul made his way finally to Jerusalem. He gets to the city of Jerusalem and he reports to the church leaders everything that God has done on his missionary travels uh, and specifically... Paul really wants to make sure that they hear about God's work among the Gentiles. Now, if you're like, what's a Gentile? Gentile is if you're not Jewish. So it's pretty simple. Uh, and if you're in this room, more than likely, we're all Gentiles in here. And so that's what that term means. And so uh, there were some rumors spreading. Uh, and so the elders of the church asked Paul to undergo a Jewish purification ritual uh, because they wanted to hopefully silence those rumors. They wanted to bring unity to the church in Jerusalem. And the rumor was that Paul was telling Jews uh, that were with Gentiles to abandon some of their core traditions. Uh, the rumors weren't true. Paul wasn't doing that. But Paul submitted anyway to the gospel to preserve the unity of the church and to further the, the work of the gospel. That's kind of what we saw last week. And so this is where we're picking up our story in Acts 21. And I'm just warning you now, we're going to cover a big chunk of scripture today. So Acts chapter 21, verses 27 is where we're going to start. And I'll just go a little bit and uh, intersperse some uh, thoughts in there. So Acts 21, verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Now, this isn't laid hands on him in prayer. Okay, you're going to see that. They cried out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with Paul in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So what do we see? We see that there are Jews 
from Asia who recognize Paul and they bring wild accusations against him and it incites basically mob violence. That's what's going to happen here. So uh, not what the elders had in mind when they asked Paul to do the, the, the ritual that he did last week, right? That's not what they were thinking would happen. And so these Asian Jews, what do they claim? They claim that Paul was defiling the temple, the Jewish temple there in Jerusalem, by bringing a man named Trophimus, who's from the city of Ephesus, hence Trophimus the Ephesian. Uh, they brought him, the accusations that Paul brought him beyond the wall that separates what's called the court of the Gentiles from the inner sanctuary. So the sanctuary or the temple has different kind of concentric circles, if you will. And there's a place called the court of the Gentiles, where if you're a Gentile and you want to follow God, you can come in this far, but you can't go in uh, to the main area that if you were Jewish, you could go in. Again, this is a lie. Paul has not done this. So simply no way Paul would do this. Paul would never violate a Jewish custom like this. And on top of that, he knew the consequence if these men would go beyond that wall, which is the death penalty. So he's not going to do that. There's just no way this rumor is true. But their intended reaction goes just how they planned it, and things turn really ugly. Look at verse 30. Then all the city... Now remember, we're near Pentecost, so this is big crowds. All the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul, and they dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, in case you were wondering, what are they going to do to Paul? They were seeking to kill him. Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. If you're a civil leader, the last thing you want is everybody in confusion. 32, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So Paul's taking a beating with the intention that they want to kill him. So severe beating. 33, then the tribune came up and arrested him. So he's getting beaten and he gets arrested. It's kind of crazy. And ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Okay, so what do we see here? We see the crowd become hostile and try to kill Paul, right? Thankfully, word gets to the Roman tribune, uh, who is a commander of a cohort, about a thousand soldiers, who would have been stationed nearby... Why? Because the temple area can be an unpredictable place. You've got people who are passionate about what they believe coming to a place, gathering together, and stuff like this can happen, especially when there's a lot of people around. So they're stationed nearby. Now, the commander who has the responsibility of maintaining peace and order in the city, he's going to arrest Paul, and Luke says that he puts him in two chains, which is important. Uh, because it's probably a fulfillment of the prophecy of Agabus earlier in chapter 21 of Acts uh, that Paul would be bound hand and foot, if you remember that prophecy. Uh, so we see that the tribune asks Paul what he did to incite the riot, but the crowd is so unruly that they cannot get to the bottom of what has happened to incite this riot. Now, just as a way of picturing the chaos that this can be, I've never been in a crowd that was going to riot, but I have very recently been in a crowd that was angry with an umpire. And if you've been in that kind of situation, and this is on very, very much less importance, nobody can hear anything. Everybody's screaming at the guy, telling him he's terrible. Now, if maybe some people did want to kill the umpire, but uh, they weren't able to do that. So if you've ever been in that kind of situation, you know how chaotic it is. And nobody can understand or hear anything. And this is the perfect place for crazy rumors to spread. And so they can't get to the bottom of what happens. Verse 34. 
Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. You know, look at the Orioles game the other day. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him, Paul, to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of people following cried out, away with him. So because of this unruly crowd, Paul is ordered, they, 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 get him into the barracks. Get him into the place where the soldiers sleep, away from this group of people. And the soldiers literally have to carry Paul in order to protect him from the angry mob. That's kind of nuts, right? That's crazy mob violence. And so they continue to shout away with him, which if you know your New Testament, sounds awfully familiar to an earlier crowd in Jerusalem that made demands of another Roman leader named Pontius Pilate when they shouted crucify him about Jesus. So we see some parallels happening. So this is an ugly scene. And so it makes you wonder, did the plan to have Paul undergo the purification rite uh, ritual backfire? Is that what this result is? I don't think that's what this is. Maybe in an earthly sense, in, in human eyes, that's what it looks like. But Paul knew exactly what he was getting into. Remember? He knew exactly that it wasn't going to be a pain-free experience in Jerusalem. In fact, he told everyone, I'm going to suffer there. And they said, but don't go. And he said, yeah, but the Holy Spirit told me, so I'm going to do it. So he knew what was happening here. So Paul's actions would eventually put the suspicions of many Jewish Christians to rest. And this event will be one of the links in the chain that's going to get Paul to Rome, which is where he wants to eventually get to. But this is also a great reminder of a theme that we can continue just hammering on over and over and over and over if we read the Bible from cover to cover, and that's this. Obedience to Jesus, walking with God, will involve suffering and hardship and difficulty. If somebody stands up in a place like this and opens a Bible and says, follow Jesus and everything will be easy, leave that place. That's not true. Your life tells you that's not true. And Christian history tells you that's not true. We should not be surprised when intimidation, hate, false accusations come our way. Now, this doesn't mean that we adopt a victim complex. Don't take it to that place. But this has been the case throughout church history. The early Christians were accused of incest and cannibalism and atheism simply because they did what? They greeted one another with a holy kiss. They took the Lord's Supper, and the thing that most frustrated the Roman Empire was that they refused to worship the emperor. If you wanted the quickest way to get killed in the Roman Empire, say that somebody other than Caesar is king or lord. And that's what the early church did. Today, what are we accused of? Well, we're accused of things like bigotry and even immorality because of things like what? Our views on what God says about marriage and sexuality or the value of every human life. And so as the preacher in Ecclesiastes would say, there is nothing new under the sun. It's not new. Don't be surprised, right? James says, don't be surprised, brothers, when trials of every kind come your way. That's just normal life. Let's continue. Verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So now what's going on here? The tribune thinks Paul might be an Egyptian assassin who had stirred up a revolt recently. And it's possible he might have thought this partly because 
Paul had shaved his head due to the vow that Paul recently took. But Paul, in verse 39, assures him that's not him. Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me, speak to the people. So, Paul informs the tribune, I'm not a terrorist. I'm not from Egypt. But I am a Jew, even though I know how to speak Greek. That's why he asked that question. I'm a Jew, and I'm a citizen of a city called Tarsus, which was an honorable city. And so here we have Paul using privilege that he has for the sake of others to preach the gospel. He says, I'm from Tarsus, which actually is one of the great university cities in the Roman world, so it would have carried some honor with it. And so when he learns this, this tribune agrees to allow Paul to speak to the crowd. And so when he had given him permission, verse 40, when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. So here we see Paul is at least bilingual. Acts, and we're now in Acts 22, verse 1, Paul says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And then he goes on. Okay, so here it is. This is Paul's famous defense, Paul's famous speech. He's about to give a very respectful and honorable and honest account of what Jesus has done in his life. We might call this in our church tradition a testimony. That's what Paul's doing here. Now remember, the fact that he is giving a respectful and honest account of what Jesus has done in his life is pretty incredible because they were just trying to beat him to death. Right? They just were trying that. He was almost killed moments before. He's been arrested. He's been chained. But what does he do? By the power of the Holy Spirit, we know he speaks calmly. Notice he addresses them as what? Brothers and fathers to people who just tried to kill him. Look at his choice of language, right? He's sincere and he's honest. He knows his audience and he is so passionate for them to know Jesus, that he speaks to them with affection. What does that say about us when we're offended and we want to speak back? Verse 3 in Acts 22. I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death. Now, the way in the book of Acts is Christianity. They didn't go by Christian. They just went by follower of the way, and everybody knew what that meant. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Verse 5, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed to Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So here's Paul telling the story of his life before his encounter with Jesus. So for us, as we think as Christians giving our story, don't ever try to clean it up. Don't try to clean your testimony before Jesus up. No, all of your failures back there are now stories of God's grace to tell. That's what they've turned into, and that's why shame now has no power over you. So he opens his defense by identifying with the crowd and reflecting on his life before Jesus. He was a zealous man who wanted to destroy Christianity. He knew the elders could confirm the story because he got legal papers from them to go do it. 
He was willing to travel all the way to Damascus to persecute, to terrorize, even to murder followers of the way. But then Paul says something happened. Look at verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see, because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. So here's his story, right? What happens? What was it that transformed this man, Saul, from a man who the Bible says was breathing out threats and murder against Christians into a man who is pleading with this crowd who was trying to kill him to follow Jesus? What makes that transformation? Well, Paul encountered the living Christ. And from that moment, everything changes. So I wonder for us, if you remember the moment that you encountered the living Christ. You might not have been on the road from Damascus and seen a bright light, but if you follow Jesus, you've encountered the living Christ. And I wonder if any of us remember the moment that everything changed. I can remember from my story, it was when I was very little in a church just like this one. I was thinking this morning as my daughter ran up on the stage here in the middle of everything, right? That I did that to a pastor when I was a kid. I crawled under the pews while he was preaching and he held me for like 25 minutes at the end of his sermon. But my moment like that came at a little fall festival when I was about seven or eight years old. I can remember it. I can remember sitting in the grass. I can remember what the guy said. And I remember that something changed and I believed and trusted in Jesus. And so I wonder if you remember that moment. Jesus in that story on the road to Damascus, could have executed Paul for what he had done. But he doesn't. Instead, what does Jesus do? This is what Jesus does. He turned a terrorist into the greatest evangelist the church has ever known. By what? His grace. By his grace, he did that. That's what Jesus does, and that's what he continues to do through us now as his church. As Paul continues in his defense speech, he emphasizes, though, his love and his respect for Israel. Notice this. We talked about this on Friday night. This is really important. Verse 12, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there. So this Ananias person uh, who led Paul into the Christian faith was known by them for keeping God's commands. Notice he is not bashing the law. That's never what Paul's doing. Ananias came to me and standing by me, he said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and I saw him. 14, and he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. Okay, this is similar language that God used in Moses' burning bush experience. So the same God who commissioned Moses is now commissioning Paul. There's a connection being made here. And in making this connection, Paul is highlighting his connection, his heritage back to the Jewish faith and the grace of God in that. The Jewish faith is a, is a faith of grace. And so did Moses deserve to hear God's voice and to be used to bring God's people to freedom? No, Moses didn't deserve it. Moses was a murderer. Did Paul deserve this grace 
Did he deserve the privilege of proclaiming liberty to the nations? No. Both of them received this through grace and grace alone. 14. And he said, Ananias said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and hear a voice from his mouth. Now this again is an Old Testament allusion. Paul is stressing to them, knowing his audience, the connection between the Old Testament and Jesus the Messiah. The prophet Isaiah speaks of the righteous one as the obedient servant who is wounded for our transgressions. Paul is not using accidental language here. So the only way for a person to be righteous is through the righteous one, not through religious efforts. The law is good, but hear me, the law cannot save you. Right? The law is good and it was given to us by God, but it's not salvific. So Paul is pointing out here that Judaism, rightly understood, should culminate in faith in this Jesus who is the righteous one of whom Isaiah spoke. He's showing this Jewish audience, hey, this is what we've been waiting for. Verse 15, let's keep going. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Ananias said, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So God called Paul to be his witness to all people, not just the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And he would give eyewitness testimony to people of all ethnicities, all social classes, all types of people. Which is one of the things I love the most about this church is when I look out at this room, it's a pretty good representation in here. We've got a pretty great representation of what God does, right? Ananias tells Paul to get up and to be baptism, baptized. And what is baptism? If you're new with us, baptism is simply an outward expression of an inward reality. It's a way for us to obey Jesus and express our faith in him. So calling on the name of Jesus, what is it? What is the call to Jesus? It's a cry for salvation, for rescue, for cleansing, and it's a sign that you want new life in him. Paul became a new creation in Christ, and any one of us who follows Jesus, there was a moment for us when the old passed away and we walked in newness of life with Jesus. And if you've never done that, man, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Do that now. In the last part of Paul's defense speech, he, he tells them about this vision that he had in the temple. This is part of Paul's story that doesn't actually appear in Acts chapter 9. And, and most likely, it's here to answer the mob's charges that he defiled the temple. Remember, that's why they were mad at him. He wasn't interested in defiling the temple. He actually prayed in it. Look at verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was what? Praying in the temple. Not defiling the temple. I fell into a trance and saw him, Jesus, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, if you know your Old Testament, in some ways, Paul's vision here sounds very similar to Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6, which is actually, uh, we could have a very nerdy conversation about worship later, but that's the basis for the order of service that we use 
uh, many times in our service. But Paul's vision here sounds a lot like Isaiah's vision back in Isaiah chapter 6. Again, showing us the continuity between the Old Testament, the Jewish faith, and the New Testament, this way of following Jesus, who was a Jewish rabbi, by the way, right? Both men were called through a vision. Both men are commissioned. Both were told that people would reject their messages. Isaiah was told to stay in the city to face rejection. And Paul was told to leave, to go to another people. And so Paul describes how he protested the vision. He wanted to stay in Jerusalem, but the Lord sent him far away to the Gentiles. And praise God for us that he did. This calling to the, to the Gentiles is not for the sake of safety, but as a matter of God's purposes in the world. We know it's not a matter of safety for Paul because it was anything but safe when he left Jerusalem. The Lord had raised Paul up specifically so that he would be a witness to the Gentiles. Right? Now, I just want to end uh, by just pointing out to you a few key features from Paul's defense. And this is not original thoughts to me, but they're really good. Here's the first feature of Paul's defense. Is Paul, Paul's calmness and his peace, his inner peace, in the middle of this chaotic moment. In this intense moment, Paul responds with what? Meekness, gentleness, and compassion. He doesn't respond like I would want to respond in anger. Right? I don't even think I'd have the frame of mind to ask the guy to, to quiet the crowd down. I would just want to be swinging and screaming and whatever I could do. But that's not Paul. He responds with meekness, with gentleness, with compassion. He doesn't respond in anger. He doesn't attack. What does he do? He reasons. So the next time you find yourself in a pressure-filled conversation, or you read a comment that really just, ugh, right? What I want to invite you to do is think about this story and invite Ask the Father to calm you and to give you grace to speak the message that needs to be spoken with gentleness and respect. Let your reasonableness be known to everybody, the scriptures say. Here's a second key feature is Paul's courage. So in the face of opposition, yes, he remained calm, but he doesn't bend. He doesn't budge. He stands his ground, and this is a kind of boldness that's wrapped in love and kindness that can only come from the Holy Spirit, right? Those of you who've been in frustrating situations, which I assume is everybody in this room, you know that once that part of you that is anger gets triggered, it's pretty tough to shut it off. You're going to need some kind of power outside of yourself to help you with that. We all know, though, there's a difference between staying calm and failing to speak when we should speak. Those are two different things. Staying calm and cowardice are not the same. We need to be able to speak boldly in both truth and in love at the same time, wrapped up all together. So only churches and Christians that love people and stand firmly on the gospel against the winds of the culture blowing, hear me now, from both the left and from the right will have anything to offer this broken world. Because there's cultural winds blowing from all directions. And staying calm and not speaking when we should speak are not the same. So lastly, the third thing we can learn from Paul is that he knows his calling. He knew he had a commission from his Lord, which is what? To proclaim the good news of Jesus for him specifically to the Gentiles. But that's our calling too. 
That's our job too. I had this conversation with a pastor friend of mine. We were talking about the differences between vocation and calling and occupation. And I said, but the word vocation means calling. That's where that language means. So your calling as a Christian is the same calling as every other Christian. The specifics of how we accomplish that calling might be unique to each of us. But the commission from Jesus is the same. Go and make disciples. Proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus to everyone. On this particular occasion, the crowd tries to kill the bringer of that news. On other occasions in Acts, we see what? Different responses. Sometimes people respond in faith. Sometimes people are like, well, come back and I want to talk again. We aren't responsible for the results of what happens when we lovingly, wisely, wittingly, winning, win, winsomely proclaim the good news, but we are responsible for sharing it. It's not good enough for us to be like, well, I, I prayed for my neighbor. I've known him for 30 years. I've never shared the gospel with him, but hopefully somebody will. Hopefully God reaches out. God's trying to reach out. You live next door. We aren't responsible for the results, but we're responsible for our calling. Sometimes people will be enraged by a gospel presentation. I've seen it happen. Sometimes people will hear it. Maybe they might ask a few questions. And sometimes people surrender to the lordship of Jesus and a miracle happens. We, we have to remember that no one is outside the reach of God's grace. The scriptures say that God's arm is not too short to save. His ear is not dull that he can't hear our cries. Right? Look at Paul. From terrorist to evangelist. And let me just remind you, if you know and love Jesus, look at you. Right? You're in the family. That's a miracle. Look at me. So what do we take from this story in Acts? Just quickly. Be faithful in every situation. Look at the example of Paul. Look at him following Jesus and we can follow his example. Be faithful in every situation, knowing full well that difficulty and suffering are part of the way of following Jesus. Sow the seeds of the gospel of Jesus, which is what? That Christ, according to the scriptures, died for our sins, was crucified, was buried, was raised again and ascended to heaven. And he sits, sits at the right hand of God Almighty, the Father. And when we trust in that and Jesus is our Lord, we receive the gift of everlasting life in his presence with us forever. That's the seeds we sow in every area of our life, both in word and in deed. And when, then we do that and we just trust God. We, we just trust God. Might be hard. I might have to go to jail. I don't know. But God's with me and that's it. That, that's what we can learn from the Apostle Paul in our text today. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that for some of us, you, you have to blind us on a road to Damascus and bring us to yourself. And for some of us, you rescue us through a little fall festival at a little tiny church in Southern California when we're a kid. Jesus, you've said you're, you're calling people who are both near and far from you. So, Father, maybe there are some of us in this room who are near. We've been to church our whole life. We know all the answers, but we don't know you. Would you bring us in? Would you help us to trust you? And those of us who might feel far who feel like, man, God is so far away from me, I can never come back. Lord, may those of us hear your gracious invitation this morning to come, 
to come to the table. The, the, the ground is level at the foot of your cross, Jesus. And so we pray that as we hear these stories about the passion that this apostle has to share the news about Jesus, what you've done for us, that it would trickle down to us and we would be passionate to see those people who live near us, who are in our circles of accountability and influence, come to know and love you as well. Father, we ask for your blessing as we go out from here in a little while and as we spend this next week living in your kingdom that is already here and not yet here uh, together as a church family. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.